This season of Point of View and Censor is brought to you by Juicy Details Juice Bar, located on the southeast side of Atlanta on University and Pryor Road. Welcome to Point of View Uncensored, where our views are based off facts and not feelings. Again, I am Dr. Renaissance, and today I have a special guest with me and also a special friend. How are you doing today, Mr. Cracklin Carden? Hey man, how's it going? Pretty well. So explain to the, our viewers, you know, about what you're doing and, yeah, sure. and what is your claim to fame. Yeah, so um, my name's Kirkland Carden. Um, I've lived in Georgia for 18 years. I currently serve on the Gwinnett County Board of Commissioners, District 1. It's an elected position. So for those who don't know, Gwinnett County is the second biggest county in the state of Georgia. We're the fastest growing county in the state of Georgia. We're the most diverse county in the Southeast, mm. United States. Mm. Um, our form of government, um, there are five commissioners who help manage and run that county government. There are four district commissioners that are elected in different districts. Um, we have a chairwoman who's elected at large. Um, I was elected to District 1 of the Gwinnett County Board of Commissioners November of 2020. My district includes the cities of Duluth, Swanee, Sugar Hill, and I have a good portion of that Gwinnett Place Mall area near 85. And uh, I just finished up my first year in office, and I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you this afternoon and be on your show. Well, thank you. I'm glad you decided to come on the show today. Yeah. So for viewers who are not familiar with what a commissioner is, what particularly does a commissioner do as far as what's the description of the job and sure. what does it entail? That's a great question because I find in this work a lot of people don't know um, what a commissioner, county commissioner does. So uh, like I said, we've got a county of a million people and we have some 5,700 plus employees that work for Gwinnett County government. The Gwinnett County Board of Commissioners operates like a board of trustees would for a major business. We are five executives that make decisions that affect the operations and the structure of Gwinnett County government. We just approved a budget uh, last week, our first meeting of the year. Um, it was a $2.07 billion budget, right? That budget sets the operations, that budget sets the services that we provide for our county. So uh, outside of the budget part, we deal with personnel, um, we hire senior level staff, uh, the county administrator, the county attorney, the auditor, those are the three people are our direct hires. We also make land use and zoning decisions. So every month we have public hearings and we deal with the rezoning or uh, development of land. So, you know, it, that's the kind of stuff that was really, you know, right at my wheelhouse and my background's in city planning. But lastly, uh, most important thing is we provide leadership. You know, we have a number of issues that we deal with. Um, that are in the purview of county government, and sometimes we have to step up and show leadership um, for a county of a million people. As you can tell, it's a busy job, um, but it's an opportunity of a lifetime, if you ask me. I've wanted to do this job for a very long time, and I'm very honored and blessed to have the opportunity to do it. Well, good. I'm glad that they, um, people of Gwinnett decided to elect you as a commissioner. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, next question, I wanted to go into, because um, I know you, you said, uh, giving them, I guess you provide leadership to the county. So I'm glad you talked about that. So one of the main things we're going to discuss is um, voting rights. I know in redistricting mm -hmm. and gerrymandering, a lot of stuff that kind of been going on with the news. But I first want to start with uh, giving um, our respect to um, Dr. Martin Luther King. His birthday actually is today, mm -hmm. and which is pretty much his weekend. Mm -hmm. And um, actually one of his last books that he uh, wrote, Where Do We Go From Here? Mm. As you can see, Where Do We Go From Here? 
um, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit about now. Where do we go from here as far as, you know, when he left behind us a great legacy, right. um, a court, uh, including the Voting Rights Act of 1965, um, which we're going to discuss a lot about that and, and affects how it relates to us today. What do you uh, remember best about Martin Luther King and why, does he spe- why is he special to you? Well, I think he's special um, here in Atlanta, in Georgia, you know, where we're at the home, the birthplace of the civil rights movement. Um, I think Dr. Martin Luther King helped shape modern day Atlanta, modern day Georgia, and his legacy is present to this very day. And, you know, it's just such a timely uh, holiday with the issues that we're dealing with, we're still dealing with. I mean, Dr. King was talking about these issues long before we were born, before our parents were born, right? Uh, uh, income inequality, uh, voting rights, uh, 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 civil rights, and yet here we are in 2022, and I feel like those issues have evolved, but we're still having the same discussion. So, like I said, I think it's very timely, and I think he's just as relevant as he was in the mid-60s um, today in modern-day Georgia. Now, do you think, based off what's going on today, he would be pleased with what the things that he see based off the legacy that he left behind? I mean, I do. I mean, there's challenges, yes, but I think we can all agree that the situation of marginalized Americans is better than it once was. You know, are there shortcomings? Yeah. You know, are there things for us to address? Definitely, and we got to work to address it. But um, um, by and large, I mean, without question, I think the situations of people, people of color in this country have improved tenfold um, from Dr. King's death. Good. Now, I know um, this weekend, I think his family, the King family, they're actually in Phoenix, Arizona Mm -hmm. with uh, the organizer and CEO of Black Voters Matter, Latasha Brown. Um, And I can just give a clip of um, what she stated, um, and it goes right here. Okay, we've got her. She's good. Latasha Brown is joining us, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. She, of course, has been pushing Democrats to pass voting rights laws sooner rather than later. She's joining me from that march in Phoenix. So, hello, my friend. And as we look at you and the conversations we've had, you've been so very vocal on all of this. Uh, I want to remind viewers again that your group actually sat out that speech by President Biden in Atlanta this week because you said you've got to come with some concrete things that the federal government steps will be taken. Uh, and, and you weren't happy with what happened and what in advance of that speech. So how do you wrap up your views on what happened this week? Let me just say, I think that we've talked and been very vocal about what it is that we desire, um, why we weren't attending the speech. But I will say that he made a good speech. I think the elements of the things that he said in the speech, that's what we were asking for. We were just asking that the president would put the full weight because we knew this was a critical moment for us. In addition to that, we wanted to make sure that we lift and we amplify how serious this is as an issue. And so what we've decided at, at this point, we're here now. What we have to do is collectively, we have to do the work. We have to make sure that we get voting rights passed. Here we are the weekend, the MLK weekend, just as we marched across the bridge in Selma, Alabama. We're now marching across the bridge in Phoenix, Arizona, because the fight is here. The fight is in West Virginia. The fight is in with those 16 Republican senators that voted for voter um, voting rights, um, uh, the authorization of the Voting Rights Act before, but for some reason are not voting for it now. This is a critical moment, and we've got to hold all of our electors accountable. That is part of the democratic process. 
So that's why we're here and we're going to continue because it's not over until we reach victory. Yeah, 2006 is when they, you know, when they last authorized the, right, um, right. the act. And I think now they're supposed to be voting on Tuesday with the Senate to to um, to those two bills that's in office now, which is the John Lewis Voting um, Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, and the Advancement Act as well. Mm -hmm. So those two acts together, um, supposed to strengthen the voting um, suppression or mm -hmm. you know support our voting. Yeah, strengthen measures. voting rights and our voting you know systems integrity in the country on the federal level. Yeah. Yes. So basically, um, do you think them going down there? Because I know uh, Senator Christian Sinema, she's one of the ones who are actually uh, fighting against. Um, the filibuster that's required to legislate those right. bills. So um, what do you think them going down? Do you think it will make a difference um, in her actions or her opinion? I mean, I think it's always a good thing when people participate in the civic process. And if you're going to participate, protest, and make your voice heard in any state, to me, it seems like you want to go to West Virginia or Arizona. Mm -hmm. You know, we got two senators in Georgia, and they're with the program. You know, they, they support this, especially Raphael Warnock. He's an elegant speaker, and you can tell this is an issue that he's passionate about. So um, with that said, one has to wonder whether efforts be fruitful, because it seems like uh, the senator from Arizona is pretty dug in on this issue. Um, I think you and me were talking about earlier is that, man, we're talking about voting rights here. This is the foundation of our democratic republic. And you know, we're seeing a pattern in these states that are run by Republican state governments, state Republican state legislatures, Republican governors, Republican secretary of states. It's a systematic effort to make it harder for people to vote. You know, the two, three states that come to mind, Texas, Mississippi, and home, here home in Georgia, um, at a time, right, in a pandemic where people are risking their lives, their health, to participate in the democratic process, these guys have you know, championed legislation that's gonna make it hard to vote. So I don't wanna get in too much, but I can speak to this a little bit as a county commissioner. They um, passed this bill called Senate Bill uh, 202. Um, it was the most regressive and aggressive legislation that I can think of in my lifetime to make it harder for people to vote here in the state of Georgia on the state level. And of the many things in it, the one thing that stuck with me the most is the drop boxes. Right, so you remember in the pandemic, for those who aren't familiar, uh, in the pandemic, to try to reduce the spread of COVID, uh, the state government, right, the state Republicans, you know, created a system where you could uh, have Dropbox in your counties, in your cities, to submit your ballot. Mm -hmm. Well, Senate Bill 202 limited the number of Dropboxes that a county can have. So in a county of, like Gwinnett, with a million plus people, right, 11% of the state's population, they limited our drop boxes significantly. So just really making it harder for people to cast their, vote, their votes. They said uh, you can only have it during certain hours. Uh, they put in ridiculous security measures. Keep in mind there were no allegations, no credible allegations of fraud or abuse in Gwinnett. To me, it's just unfortunate that they're showing their intentions, they're showing their hand, what's important to them, that they just want to make it harder for people to vote in this state. But why, 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 why make it purposely, like what's the purpose of making it harder? Like, what would they be doing that? Well, I mean, I think that's a question best for them, but, you know, one 
might assume that it's because people that are using these methods to vote, you know, may not be voting for them. My personal opinion, I think the main reason they're doing this is the guy down in Mar-a-Lago, right? Mm -hmm. Who's made uh, the big lie a national front page issue, the issue in Republican politics right now, questioning the results of the election and finding any reason they can to say that that election and those Senate seats that they'll won down in Georgia um, was illegitimate. It's funny you, you bring that up um, with the whole um, election uh, in integrity because now um, it's coming out that five states um, actually certify uh, fraudulent uh, election certifications. I know Wisconsin was one of them. Right. I saw Michigan, I believe Arizona. Because the problem is you have these 50 different states in this country and some of these states and their leadership are just putting out legislation that's just egregious and aggressive. And because they're so Republican dominated, you almost need um, the federal government to step in to set clear guidelines, to set those guardrails to protect against democracy. And this what scares me the most is, you know, by the time we get to 24, 2024, they would have found out how Trump lost, right? Mm -hmm. And have it down to an art, a science, how to, to make sure that doesn't happen again. Just rigging the deck, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why this, this federal uh, voting rights these, this legislation they're going to be voting on Tuesday is so important to the fabric of our nation. Yeah, so I see that Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Arkansas, Montana, and um, Pennsylvania, Texas, and I'll, and I'll show a video, um, a video right. of, or a map of all the ones that um, have voter suppression bills, but it's, it's totaled 18, I want to say 18 states mm -hmm. um, passing close to 40 bills. So, I mean, what does that say, like, with, with, with everything that's going on? You see 18 different states passing these bills, and you got our federal government who's kind of just sitting at a deaf's ear. Oh, man, it, it's a, uh, um, man, it's concerning. Um, it, it shows that, you know, what I said earlier is that the, the issues that Dr. Martin Luther King talked about in his time are still relevant. You know, I think for a period of time in this country, we got complacent or comfortable, and now some of our basic fundamental rights are under attack, and we gotta play defense. And I think for us, right, the, the millennials, the people who are in their 30s and 20s, this may feel unfamiliar or uncomfortable, but you know, this is the struggle, right? This is what Dr. Martin Luther King laid his life down for. Um, to protect voting rights, to protect civil rights. It's discouraging and it's scary, but this is why we need strong federal leadership on this issue. So the next thing um, that um, a lot of us have been talking about is, even with the elections, um, comes with the gerrymandering and redistricting mm -hmm. where it is the legislators are choosing their voters. Right, um, right. That's another part of the election process that people isn't talking about. Now, I don't understand, why isn't that illegal? Like. And why is it okay for them to just pick their voters? So every 10 years in this nation, we go through the census, which is a count of Americans, America's population. Um, from there, we go into reapportionment. 
from reapportionment, we go into redistricting. And that's where um, we're at today. So Georgia, we had a special session last year to draw the districts for the state legislators in the congressional seats and some seats on the Public Service Commission. But mainly for this conversation, let's focus on the state legislators, the state house, state senate, and the congressional seats. So that was handled last year in special session. Um, now in Georgia, it's a 50-50 state. Some say it's purple, it's competitive. I think we can all agree it's somewhere in the middle. It's a 50-50 state. Yet, when you look at the congressional seats that were drawn, Democrats actually lose a seat with, with Lucy McBath. Remember, that? I'm not sure if you know, she's actually moved, she actually said she's gonna sell her house in Cobb, she's gonna buy a house in Gwinnett and Lawrenceville and run in the seventh against Carolyn Bordeaux. Oh, wow. So you can see they created a lot of disruption. So even though the state is 50-50, somehow Democrats end up losing a seat, not gaining anything. And that's why people call it foul. That's why people say it's gerrymandering. The practice of gerrymandering is when you intentionally draw these political boundaries for the purposes of political gain. So I say all that to say, in Gwinnett, um, this was an issue that was really important to me, and it has been. Last year in the summer, I went to my commission colleagues, and I was like, we need to be a part of this process. We need to draw our own maps, but do it in a way that's fair and transparent and nonpartisan. So there's a state law called Senate Bill 177. It allows school boards, county governments, and some cities to submit a draft map for consideration for the legislature, the Georgia General Assembly, to consider. So I, was, I took the position that Gwinnett County government should take full advantage of this law, but we're gonna do it differently. And what we did is we had an open, transparent process to collect data and draw these maps. Mm -hmm. But we collected the data by listening to our residents. We had a series of town hall events, open houses, um, from November to December in the four different commission districts. And in those, you know, those events, uh, it was a different town hall event or open house in that it wasn't an event where you come to and you hear a politician speak at a podium. We actually had booths set up, right? And we educate people what the process is, showed them past maps, showed them census tract, racial makeup of the, of, the, of the county. And then we asked them straight up, what are some things we need to consider when drawing these maps? And they said that we want our cities to be intact. We wanna have communities of interest. We don't want gerrymandering. So we took those comments, worked with county staff and our GIS department and the state reapportionment office, the office that deals with redistricting, and our legal department. And we actually prepared a single map that is a pretty good defensible map. Um, and I think it's really good too, because in those four districts, it's about equal representation or proportion representation for the county makeup. So you can't say there's no representation because is about same black population, same white population as it is countywide, in District 1 and in District 3, et cetera, with some small changes. So we submitted that map, we gave it to our legislators. We actually had a meeting Thursday um, with the local delegation where they voted to say, hey, this is the map, this is official, we're gonna carry this in the General Assembly. So I say all that to say, we laid out a really thorough 
transparent, and I would say fair process to create that map. To the best of my knowledge, there's no county in Georgia doing what we've done, doing what we did. And also keep in mind, the legislative session just started. We got our maps in first week. That's impressive. So you may not like the results, right? Because you know, you can't make everybody happy, but you can't attack the process because the process was done in good faith. But with that said, you see a lot of different state legislators, local communities, and even the federal government not take that approach to redistricting, right? They gerrymandered. They drew it in a way that gave them political gain, right? We didn't do that. You know, I was really transparent with people. I was like, I just want my house in my district. <laughs> you know, don't draw me out. <laughs> Let me keep my job. Um, but, you know, I found in doing this, gerrymandering um, is one of those issues that gets people fired up. Like, you, I mean, you know, it, it's really partisan. It's really divisive. Both sides don't like it because both sides, depending on where you're at, can be on the short end of the stick. So with all that said, what are your thoughts on that and what, we, what we're doing in Gwinnett? Um, what kind of struck out to me when you said Lucy McBath might lose her seat? Oh, so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. what? Like how? Like oh man, let me let me rewind on that. So <laughs> you know she's currently the congresswoman for the six. Yes. Right, That's and you know we had right? yeah yeah you know the Democrats we you know, we fought to help her get elected. She was elected 2018. Mm -hmm. Okay, Carolyn Bordeaux was she ran in 2018, lost, but got it in 2020. Well, they, the legislature. Georgia General Assembly did redistricting last year. Mm -hmm. And they drew her seat, Lucy McBass, in a way where it is going to be Republican mm -hmm. no matter who the Democratic nominee is this year. Mm -hmm. It goes all the way up to Dawson County, right? It goes from Metro Atlanta that far north. I think Dawson County voted for Trump by 70%. Mm -hmm. So it is an uphill battle for any Democrat who's a nominee. So she said, okay, um, I don't like my odds. I'm going to move over to the seventh, because keep in mind, in Congress, there's no residency requirement. Mm -hmm. You don't have to live in a district that you're elected to and represent. This is in the state, right? Yeah, this is in Congress. Okay. State legislature, you got to, there's that requirement. In county commission, I have to, there's that requirement. It explicitly says that. But in Congress, you know, it doesn't say that. So that means she said, okay, I'm going to sell my house in Cobb County. I'm going to move to Lawrenceville, and I'm going to run for the seventh. Because she said that map ain't winnable. But in doing so, she's going to challenge an incumbent, a sitting congresswoman, Carolyn Bordell. So it creates, what they did created a lot of disruption and division. Because now in my part of town, you got Democrats saying, I'm team Lucy, I'm team Carolyn. And at the end of the day, what you have is two Democratic progressive women going toe to toe, tearing each other apart for a job. And that's energy we're spending at each other when we could be spending that energy in this Senate race and this governor's race this year. And for those that don't know um, Lucy McBath, um, previously she was um, her son, Jonathan Davis. Mm -hmm. Jonathan Davis, he was killed by... It was in Florida. It, w it, was, Florida. A it was a terrible situation. Um, I, no, correct me if I'm wrong on this, and I'm not going to say too much. I don't remember the details, but her son was in Florida in a car with some of his friends. There was some loud music being played, mm -hmm. and a dude approached them and just started shooting in the car. And her son died. And it was a terrible event. 
and she ran for, for local office. Actually, I think I remember when she announced for State House, but then she decided to run for Congress and focus all on voting rights. Not voting rights, uh, uh, um, guns. Gun, gun, yeah, yeah. Gun violence. Yeah, focusing on gun violence. And she won her first time for election. She's a very talented woman. I like her a lot. Yeah, it, it, I mean, when I first met her, I remember when I first met her, um, when she, because the whole purpose for running for office was to try to change things yeah. that's been going on with the black community. And I know she talked about, she was for Voting Rights Acts and student loans, and that's a whole other ball game as well. So um, it's funny, it's, kind of, it's just kind of crazy now that she got into her position now, it's being taken away now. Yeah. You know, she has to run somewhere else. So it's like, yeah. It's like a never ending battle. Yeah. <laughs> and then on the other side, you got Carolyn, who's a, you know, Good people, personal friend of mine, just got elected in 2020. Has probably thought, well, I'll just have a quiet re-election, but now she has to get primaried by Lucy McBeth. Like she just beat the Republican. Now she has to come two years later to protect from her left flank. And there's no way that she they can fight that legislation that they're doing? To I, I think there's a suit right now to challenge the actual uh, uh, maps the General Assembly passed. But, you know, it has to play out in litigation, right? And that can take a long time. Okay. Years even. Okay. So. Oh, wow. That's, that's mm. crazy. I didn't even know about that. <laughs> yeah, man, that's, that's the talk of the town where I'm at. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I, I hope, I hope um, Lucy McBath and Carol Bordeaux, I hope they can, we can try to come up with some type of uh, Solution to try hey, man, to, I'm neutral. I'm just sitting outside. <laughs> <laughs> I know in Atlanta, they, we've discriminated, uh, decriminalized marijuana. Um, the small amounts, yeah. yeah. Well, I think if you get like a, you have more than a, uh, an it, ounce. An ounce, a $75 ticket or something, or something. If it's less than an ounce, it's $75. Okay. If I think if it's more than an ounce, it's a different, it's not a misdemeanor offense. Okay. So. So, um, so all that going on, um, now what's the, now the whole argument is that, you know, I think it's the money of it. It's the the profit of of the marijuana. I think that's kind of caused the issue. I think because I think now it's like the government can sell it now. It's like the government's selling it now at this point, right? Well, well, here's here's the problem, and I, I'll lay a little bit of foundation of what we're doing in Gwinnett, so or what we try to do in Gwinnett. So, state law says if you have a small amount of marijuana, an ounce or greater. You can be incarcerated. You can go to jail. Okay. Um, in Gwinnett County, if you look at our code of ordinances, I believe it's section 66-3 deals with small marijuana possession. You can, as of today, as the law reads, you can serve a year in jail, 12 months, pay a $1,000 fine. There is a... Um, probation or community service portion to it. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but that's pretty aggressive. And I've taken the position, you know, like a number of elected officials across the nation that, you know, marijuana is bad. It should be against the law, but we don't want to lock you up for it. It's also too a drain on our county's resources. So if you have an officer and I'm just going to, you know, in this example, I'm going to use Gwinnett as an example. See, I'm in Duluth, and if you got an officer who arrests somebody, uh, in Duluth, we'll say on a Wednesday at 5 p.m. Um, for a marijuana offense, they have to drive to Lawrenceville, and that's two plus hours, right, to get to the jail in Lawrenceville, book them and process them. 
That's two plus hours um, that that officer could have spent out of rush hour traffic on the streets focusing on serious crimes. Now keep in mind, Gwinnett's no different from Atlanta. We too have a crime uh, problem related to COVID. We see an increase in crimes, violent crimes, property crimes, arson, uh, uh, theft, uh, homicide, you name it. Especially in my district, because I have a lot of commercial. So there's a lot of commercial property crimes. Mm -hmm. I'm taking the position that I want our county government to focus on those quality of life issues and less so of those, um, you know, locking people up over a joint. So, you know, um, I tried to work with my colleagues earlier this year. We got, you know, some pretty good legislation we created. Um, the end result um, would remove jail time. The fine would be not to exceed $150. Community service would not to exceed 20 hours. And we put language in there saying, um, a recorder's court judge has the ability to put someone in a drug treatment court, course. So that means if you have a substance abuse problem with marijuana, you can get the treatment you need to get off of it, get your life turned around and live a rewarding, you know, productive life here in society, in Gwinnett County. Um, piece of legislation I'm very proud of, but unfortunately I just didn't have a vote when it comes down to it. I was able to get two in favor, uh, three against. I tried to do it two different um, votes, just didn't have the votes. Um, but with that said, um, there's always next time, you know, there's always future opportunities to introduce legislation. And maybe we just need to, you know, spend a little more time convincing folks, you know, and like educating my colleagues on the pros um, uh, uh, this legislation would have on Gwinnetians. But also, too, there's elections, right? Um, you may get turnover, you may get a new board in two or four years, so that might be an opportunity to readdress it. But I do want to say this, that is a priority of mine, something I campaigned on, and that's a campaign promise I want to deliver, is the decriminalization of marijuana, but by and large, reducing our incarcerated population in Gwinnett and doing it in a smart way. I think if we can find a way to get people the help they need with keeping them out of jail, we can avoid a whole series of problems that they would face and save some money and save county resources, and that's what it's about. And so my question is, what, what is the, what's the issue of why that legislation cannot get passed? Like, what, what's the negative impact on marijuana? Because most people say they use it as medicine, it's therapeutic, you know, it's nothing hindering them. So what would be the whole argument why not to make decriminalize marijuana? Look, I, I mean, I can't speak for my colleagues. You know, um, I, I will say this. When you looked at the vote, I was surprised to see the generational shift or breakdown of the vote, right? The people who are on the commission that were 40 and under voted for yes. The ones who were over, a little more senior members of the board, voted no. Mm -hmm. So if you were to ask me personally, I think it may be a generational difference on how they view marijuana, um, the effects uh, it has on a person, and the need to reform the criminal justice system to ensure that we're not locking poor black and brown folks up. Right? That's another thing, too. The NAACP of Georgia, uh, the ACLU of Georgia, and Georgia Norm, which some organizations I worked with to get some research, 
all three different organizations found that without a doubt, black and brown folks are victims of these ordinances, of these laws, more so than their white counterparts. All studies have shown that black folks, white folks, Asian folks, you name it, we all use, you know, have the same drug usage. But yet, when it's time to, you know, enforce and sentence people, somehow it's people like you and me, our Hugh, that make up the, 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 the majority of those convictions who serve the harsh jail sentences. And that's wrong, right? So for me, part of that too is just removing the discretionary ability of that officer to say, I'm having a bad day, I'm locking you up, but I think I like you, I'm gonna let you walk, and say, you know what, we're calling balls and strikes for everyone. Pay a ticket, see you in recorder's court. And if not, then that's a whole different you know, situation. Well, thank you for that. I'm glad, glad you gave me that, that feedback. I know most people wanna know or wondering, like, you know, um, especially with, you know, so many of our black and brown people are in jail right now, just mostly because of drug, drug, drug charges, uh, which we all know that was started originally by, I believe, the Nixon administration. Nixon, it started yeah, there yeah. with the whole war on drugs, and then Reagan came and followed by it. Um, so it's safe, it is safe to say that, you know. And there were some Democrats now yeah. that unfortunately helped pursue the war on drugs, right? There were guys like Bill Clinton, Zell Miller, um, the three strikes rule, that came from, you know, uh, Democrats on the federal level. So I think there's, you know, blame on both sides. But with that said, I'm seeing a trend of bipartisan support for moving away from that. I read on Twitter earlier this week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott. <laughs> Even he's on record now saying, well, we shouldn't be locking people up over small marijuana amounts. When Greg Abbott of Texas, a very conservative governor, goes on record, and he's for decriminalization of small amounts, that says something. Nathan Deal, to his credit, Republican governor, he was really famous for reducing Georgia's incarcerated black population and did so by moving away from some of those harsher draconian drug laws to go over something more equitable in enforcement. So, you know, the, it's a complicated issue, but you know, I'm optimistic at the end of the day, uh, there'll be bipartisan support for these issues. Okay. So, so it just goes to show you that voting clearly has a big effect on everything that we do. What, that we do. Most definitely. Um, and I kind of want to go back to um, the voting rights, because I know, yeah. I don't know, we, we didn't discuss the whole reauthorization um, where the last- We kind of tailspinned off on that one, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. So. Um, most people don't know, um, so when the, when the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, it, it had a, a reauthorization component to it where, you know, where black and brown voters pretty much have temporary status to vote, where I think every 25 years. Every 25 years they have to renew the Voting Rights Act. Um, and it's, in past years it's been renewed with, I wouldn't even say little, really no opposition. It's, it's not been a contentious issue. Yeah, 98, I think 98 to zero, I think in 2006 was the last time they reauthorized, mm -hmm. reauthorized that bill. Um, and I know in 2013, we all know about the Shelby versus Holder case right. where um, the Supreme Court uh, struck down, I want to say section five of the Voting Rights Act, where um, you probably go into And that. that's with the preclearance. So that's saying states that have a history of racial discrimination uh, when it comes to those practices, has to go through preclearance 
um, by the federal government, the Justice Department, before making those changes. Um, so what that legislation did, or that Supreme Court decision did, was weaken the Voting Rights Act. It said uh, this is a political decision, um, and this fix needs to be made in Congress. It's not appropriate for it to be addressed um, at the Supreme Court. Now, with that said, it was in Congress to address it, and that's where we're at today. Congress needs to come with legislation to strengthen um, our voting integrity, our voting system in this nation. Congress needs to be one that brings back any kind of preclearance for any states that have a history of racial discrimination. And that's where we're at today. That's where we're going to be at next week on Tuesday. So, but why, why strike, I mean, if we put it in place as Congress, why would the Supreme Court struck, strike, strike it down? I'm, you know, I'm not an attorney. Um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head uh, the majority opinion on that decision. I can't remember the dissenting opinion on that decision. I know decision. John Roberts was the one who was that lasting vote that voted against. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. And I know he's the he's the chief. He's the chief. Yeah, he's yeah. the chief. So I mean, the chief is pretty much saying that striking it down. You're saying take it back to the Congress. It's like, right. well, if Congress voted for it in 1965, why would you strike it down and say, well, Congress fix it again? I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, but you know. It's one of those positions where well, the Supreme Court says, is, is this a political matter? And if this is a political matter, then we're not going to touch it. Mm. You know, I guess they've taken the position that you know, we're going to try our best not to politicize that branch of government. But in doing so, they really politicize that branch of government. When you have those tough decisions, 5-4, those split decisions, and it favors, you know, the majority party that's makes that's to make up the Supreme Court, like a Bush v. Gore. You know, I don't think it does anything to help with the integrity, uh, help preserve the integrity of the Supreme Court. But I, I couldn't tell you that off the top of my head. I would have to go research it. Well, if you look at even recent recent years, like Supreme Court is, you know, they say they don't want to be politicized, but they're making a lot of decisions. Like even with the whole. Um, I think it's just, you just had a current uh, case where with the whole um, COVID mandate oh, yeah, and yeah. testing, um, where they pretty much struck down um, Joe Biden's mandate of 100 and, I think over 100 employees. Yeah, employers with over 100 employees. Is that OSHA? They're dealing with that. Um, that struck that down. Man, I can't remember the exact language, but yeah, it hit a roadblock. But they still upheld the um, part of it that dealt with the medical profession. Yes. So you can be a nurse and have a requirement to get vaccinated. But those decisions don't help. I think that's what I'm getting at is when you have those split partisan decisions, it makes people like you and me and other Americans say this branch of government is just as divisive and partisan as the other two branches, Congress and the executive, the president. So um, it's interesting. And then what most people, I mean, what most people are forgetting is not only did he make it required for, um, just required for 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 employees 100 or more to get vaccinated. He also said he also gave in the option you can be tested every week too, and that's what mm. people are not talking about. Um, so do you think, do you think that makes sense for people to be even if they decide not to get vaccinated that they should at least be tested every week? Like why 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 would well, that? I'm gonna give the perspective of a county commissioner, right? Okay. So. Like I said, we got 5,700 employees in Gwinnett. And at this time, COVID-19 is so aggressive. This, this new variant is so contagious. 
we're seeing county staff out at levels we've never seen before. Mm. I mean, think about it. When you have a highly contagious variant like with Omicron, you're having county employees isolate themselves or go into quarantine. And if people aren't in the office uh, to do the job, that means the vital functions and responsibilities of local government is not being addressed or handled. So one issue we're dealing with in Gwinnett is the sanitation workers, you know, the folks that drive the trucks to pick up your trash from recycling and your yard waste. Well, we're seeing a huge issue with that. Omicron has really ravaged that industry. So that means if you've got 17 guys and girls out on quarantine, that means they can't offer that service. Mm -hmm. So now we're seeing a delay and we're having some real issues with trying to provide this service. We have waste haulers putting out press releases saying we're suspending this service. Mm -hmm. So going back to your original question, as one of the head executives of Gwinnett County, I say it is disruptive to county government to have a large number of your folks go unvaccinated. And again, some people have legitimate reasons, whether it's health, whether it's religious reasons. Those are issues I, I empathize and understand with. But you do have to understand when you have a large contingency in your workforce that just stubbornly refuses to get the shot or wear a face mask, that's a real problem, a vital problem to county government. And I think it is in, we have a compelling reason, right, to mandate that. I've taken that position. So one of the things we've done, we did it earlier this month, is we brought a mask mandate back. We actually had it when we first took office, we let it go last year, but we brought it back in January to where if you wanna be on county buildings or facilities, you have to wear a face mask. Is there not just protect the public, but most importantly, protect our staff. You know, we got people coming in off the streets, getting buildings, building license, building permits, you know, um, uh, sign permits, going to court, you know, dealing with their tax, taxes or tags. We got to make sure the people at the front counter, the clerks, the county commissioners are safe and healthy. Our families are safe and healthy. So, I, you know, so I guess to close it by saying this, um, I know it's, you know, a contentious issue. I know it's uncomfortable. I think I hear people make the argument of civil liberties, my body, my choice to do. But, you know, as one of those guys who has to manage a county, we got to get past this variant, right? We have to get past COVID. And until we get over that hump, we have to minimize the effects that these variants have on our workforce. Because if, again, if we can't keep our workforce, if our workforce can't do our job, that means we can't service clinicians, and that's a problem. Hmm. Well, great. Thank you for that. <laughs> you can um, tell that I, that's that's a, a contentious local issue back home. Yeah, and I mean, even if you think about the schools, like we talk about the schools, for example, like. A lot of teachers are out, are out yeah. because of the whole, the whole, the, the pandemic. Like, look at Chicago, for example. Um, they're currently on strike right now. Like, oh, really? You know, it's like to the point where you know the unions up there are striking. Now the students are protesting, saying that they are having unfair conditions in the building. That it's not mm. even safe to even go into the building, like because they don't have any like the sanitation thing, the PPE and all that, things yeah. like that. So, 
Um, for those for those people, like, what do we do about those situations? Like, if you if you say that the pandemic is so important, why aren't we supporting these these government facilities the way they should be? I agree. Um, I'll say this. I'm, I can speak to that a little bit um, from, from a different perspective now, now that I'm a dad. Okay. Um, and me and my partner work full-time jobs. So outside of being a commissioner, you know, I got my job at the state. I work with the um, Georgia Department of Transportation. And um, our kids' uh, daycare was out for 10 days because of COVID. There was a case of COVID and they had to shut it down. And we had to get our little man tested, you know, quarantine, all that. It, you know, everything's fine. But, you know, that was very disruptive for us. You know, two parents having to juggle a seven-month-old, um, I feel it. You know what I mean? I, my, I, I appreciate or this issue hits differently now that I'm a dad. Um, and I do understand how disruptive how it can be for parents. But... Um, you know, I don't know if I have the answer for that. There's a reason I ran for county commission and not school board. <laughs> <laughs> and I can show a clip. This would be a part to put a clip in right here um, in Chicago. I know it was uh, one clip where they were pretty much talking about, you know, everything that was going down here. It is right here. Weeks of pent-up emotion and worries about the Omicron virus spilling out into the open at Chicago Public School headquarters. Samantha LaSelma goes to DeVry University Advantage Academy. I'd rather it be an option to be, you know, virtual at home. I don't want to put others at risk or even like myself and my family. Students from high schools across the city converging on the loop with a message for CPS administrators and City Hall. There should be remote learning until the cases go down, as well as that's what they did last year. They waited for them to go down. Students at today's walkout demanding input when it comes to major decisions like whether or not to offer remote learning. My school was built to house 850 students. We currently have over 1,500. Walkout organizer Lux de la Garza pointing to Solario Academy High School on the southwest side. De La Garza and fellow students describing lunch tables in the hallways and library due to a lack of space. 11th grader Anna Sadira says she's worried. Not only our health, but our teacher's health, our janitor's health. School administrators responding, CPS allows for students to participate in planned civic actions, including student-led walkouts or protests. School administrators will review the students' concerns and work with the district to address them. So I know the governor's race, Stacey Abrams is currently running against Brian Kemp. Um, in this election. And also, um, even Warner, he has to rerun for right. his election because most people don't know he was he ran to fill a seat that, that was uh, vacant. Right. To serve to out the remainder of the, uh, Johnny Isaacson's term. Correct. Yes. And so now he's being, uh, he's running for to get a full, it would be six term? A full six-year six term. Yeah. yeah. So he's running for a six-year term. So with that going, I think there he's he's running again, and Stacey Abrams was running again for this, this trying to this win election. his governor seat. Yeah. So I mean, what I mean, what's going on in Georgia's head right now? Because I know a lot of people, even this across our white, black, everyone is, is frantic and kind of you know scared either way. You know, do, do anyone know who Lieutenant Governor is going to run? You know, with her. Man, like, you you throwing out a lot right now. Let, <laughs> let's just let's just try to you know 
Okay. Focus one at a time. So okay. I'll touch on the Senate and the governor's race. Okay. And then, you know, why I think it's so important, especially for Metro Atlanta and Gwinnett. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you, you, you touch on it. I mean, boom, Warnock has to run for a full six-year term. Um, he's going to clear out the field on the Democratic side. He's flushed with cash. I, this guy has the ability to really fundraise and communicate his message to voters. So I think he'll be a strong candidate. Now, the Republicans, they have a primary with several candidates. It looks like the favorite is Herschel Walker right now. Um, I have a strong lead. Uh, that's, you know, you know about Herschel Walker, right? I mean, I've heard he's not really a politician, right? No, no, no. He just moved from Texas last yeah. year. He's, but this is who they got. He was endorsed by Trump, so it is what it is. Okay. So you got that, and then in the governor's race, you got Brian Kemp trying to run for a second term. As we all know, in 2018, he barely won that seat. I mean, it was a nail biter. It's the closest of closest kind of races you can now, expect. Now discuss how he barely won, because I mean, there were a lot of a lot of conspiracies. Some people votes weren't counted. Well, I'm, I'm gonna say this: <laughs> it was a very close election. I think the biggest concern or impropriety that people had was. He was the Secretary of State mm. of Georgia at the same time he's running for governor of Georgia. Secretary of State is responsible for managing elections. So the guy is responsible for managing an election in which he is a candidate in. So you can see why a number of people would say even on the surface, that's improper, mm. right? You should resign that post, you should resign that seat and be a candidate full time. Mm -hmm. But he didn't. He only resigned after he won. He won. So I remember, you know, Stacey Abrams was, you know, kind of heated about that. I think a lot of people were. It's yes. like, bro, how can you do this? So, um, so it looks like they may have a rematch. Now, what can mess that up is you got uh, Purdue, David Purdue, a U.S. senator who just lost to John Ossoff last year, trying to make a political comeback to take on Kemp. And Kemp is getting killed by his right flank because he has Purdue coming at him with the backing of Donald Trump. Mm. See, Donald Trump has a personal vendetta against Governor Kemp. And he has made it his mission to come to Georgia and give that man hell. Political hell. Political and personal hell. Let's not beat around the bush. But it's not just that. You know, Trump has a ticket in Georgia, right? He got Herschel Walker for Senate. He has David Perdue for governor. He has Burt Jones, his buddy he endorsed running for lieutenant governor. He has Jody Heiss, who's running for secretary of state. So, you know, oh, wow. Trump has a, has a team. And it's going to be really interesting to see how strong is the Donald Trump effect in 2022? Are people really tired of him? You know, how strong is his uh, political influence in the Republican primary? If all of his guys win their primary, that says something. That shows that the Republican Party is his party. Um, now, the question is, can these MAGA candidates win a general election against Democrats who are organized and flush with cash? Just keep in mind, Trump lost Georgia. And then once he started to question the election results and interject himself in state politics in Georgia, in January of 2021, both of those Republican candidates lost, Kelly and D David. So the question with a lot of political observers is, if, Kemp can, not Kemp, if Trump continues to interject himself 
in Georgia politics, does it do the GOP more harm than good? Mm. We'll have to wait and see. And then you got, you know, Georgia's uh, uh, one and only Vernon Jones mm. running for governor, former DeKalb County CEO, you know. It, man. It's this Vernon Jones that was on CNN, right? Is that the same person? I, I, I'm assuming. You know, th this is the same Vernon that was crowd surfing, you know, at the Trump event when COVID was going on. Oh. He was the Cab County CEO. He was a state legislator over in the Cab for a while. He's a, he was a Democrat, changed parties, got on the Trump train, okay. went completely MAGA, and he's running for governor. Um, won the Republican ticket. He lives in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well I didn't know yeah. that. Interesting. So, man, needs to say, Georgia is the center of the political universe. I have friends and family all across the country, text me, call me, and they ask everything about Georgia politics. I got friends and family in California, you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, um, uh, San Bernardino, you name it. They're asking me, Stacey Abrams, how can I help her? I got family in Ohio, where I'm originally from, blowing me up. When she announced, so the interest in this governor's race, the interest in Georgia right now is just huge. So I know what, some of the main things she talked about in the last election that kind of um, became the reason why she ended up not winning was um, exact, the exact match policy she mm -hmm. mentioned, um, where the signatures, if the signatures didn't match up, mm -hmm. that they would toss the votes out. Or and they, it was a lot of, lot of different tactics that they use um, to pretty much um, not count, I guess, suppress votes. We'll say suppress votes. Like I said, make it hard for people to vote. At the end of the day, that's the narrative, right? That's the Republican scheme. Let's look at the results. How did we lose? Okay, we lost like this, so let's make it harder to vote like that. There it is. So do you think that, you know, what's the ch chance likely of this happening again? Like I said, if, you know, if it happened last time, you know, and now he's the governor. Right. And Raffensperger is the secretary of state, you know, and they're friends, right? I'm assuming Brian Kipp and Raffensperger I mean, they don't really talk to me. I'm the other party. Okay. No, I'm playing. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I, one would assume yeah. Brad Raffensperger is not a really popular guy in Republican politics from what I hear. Okay. But, but I will say this. Um, Trump was not successful in Georgia because Georgia's state Republican leadership said we are going to follow the law mm. and we're going to buck this man. It's profile and courage moment. If you were to have different people in those roles, such as lieutenant governor, the governor, secretary of state, or even the speaker of the house, you may get a different result. That's what it comes down to, right? Remember that conversation with, with um, Brad Raffensperger and, and Donald Trump? Trump's on the phone saying, Brad, you gotta find 11,000 more votes. He said, nah. If you had a different person in that office that didn't have integrity, that was willing to bend the law, break the law for this man, you may have had a different result. At the very least, it would have ended in litigation and it would have continued to make Georgia a divisive, divided, partisan place. At the very least, it would have embarrassed the state. That's why it's so important for our folks to get out there and vote. Right, to put good folks in there that will buck 
when some of the worst, um, when, when they're presented with those situations. And Brad Raffensperger is a Republican, conservative Republican, but he said no, he told the line. That's why it's so important. You got guys running for the Republican nomination this time, and they're in bed with Trump. And if we have a rematch of 2020 and 24, and those lines break the same and it's down to Georgia, we gotta make sure we have people in those offices, in those seats that have integrity, is willing to follow the law, and is willing to respect the democratic process of this nation. So, Stacey Abrams, so yeah. what do we, it's gonna, it's gonna be a race. Like, oh man, this is <laughs> going to be the race. And this, and, and, and this think like, if she wins, what could happen? Like, what consequences can come from that? Just think about our last election, mm -hmm. um, when, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris and Joe, President Joe Biden won, like, with the whole insurrection that we're still, we're still dealing with right now. Mm -hmm. Like, we deal with now everything with this commissions coming out about everything that was, that was uh, conspired, I guess, mm -hmm. um, against, against our uh, democracy. Um, are we, can we, it's safe to say that it could happen here in Georgia? If, 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 you know, if she does win office, because, I mean, you have to think about it. If this, she'll be our first African-American governor, let alone African-American woman governor. This is a big deal. Yes. And most importantly, you will have a progressive woman that's the head executive of state government who's made voting rights a central issue. And that's what we started this discussion with, talking about the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, talking about voting rights. And, and you know, that's why this next governor's election is so important. You gotta have good people in there that preserve uh, this Democratic Republic of ours. And which brings me to my um, next clip that I wanna bring, uh, I wanna show. Um, so speaking of uh, Vice President Kamala Harris and, and President Joe Biden, so they were here a few days ago here, um, actually on the campus of, of the Atlanta University Center. Um, yeah. More specifically, Clark Atlanta University, which is my alma mater. I want to uh, bring up. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think them coming here like was a political stunt that they did, or why it comes specifically to here the weekend? Why and then they both came. It's not that one of them came. They both right. came. Well, 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 you know that was strategic because they were trying to tee it up with the King holiday and put public pressure on those holdout Democratic senators in Washington to support the federal voting legislation that's going to be considered Tuesday, you know. Um, I think in some ways it was good timing, but in some ways it was poor timing. Because you got to remember the day before that, Monday, UGA won a national championship. Yeah, they did. So people's capacity is there, right? We're, we're still turned up mm -hmm. from an awesome game. And a lot of those uh, uh, you know, same folks that maybe would have showed up to that we're still trying to catch a flight back to Georgia. Mm. So, you know, at the end of the day, I definitely liked his message. I thought it was on point. You know, as a progressive here in Georgia, as a Democratic here in Georgia, I thought it was what I wanted to hear. Um, but it seemed like that response, that, that speech got, uh, mixed, got mixed reviews from people. You know, I know the Stacey Abrams, had a scheduling conflict, wasn't able to make it. And I know that's kind of the talk of the town is that, well, why didn't she make it? Why is she not, she not support Biden anymore? So, um, but I definitely think it was timely. It was the right thing to do. And I think, you know, President Biden was under a, a good bit of pressure from those same voting rights groups, right? Mm. You know, those same members of Congress in the U.S. Senate, 
the Congressional Black Caucus even putting pressure on him saying, President Biden, we're the reason you're here. We saved you in South Carolina. We gave you two Senate seats. Now you have to look out for us. Mm. And for different reasons, voting rights resonates with the African-American communities more so than other issues. Mm. This kind of reminds me where um, President Obama was at in his first term with the Latino interest groups when it came to immigration. I kind of see a parallel with that where African-Americans and voting rights with Joe Biden's at his first term. So um, it was a great event. It looked like it was well attended. Um, like I said, it has some mixed reviews, but you know, speaking for myself, I think it was the right time and right message. And I, and I saw a, a, a small little clip of um, them both speaking at Clark Lane University last, uh, this past week. Um, here it goes right here. We come to Atlanta, the cradle of civil rights, to make clear what must come after that dreadful day when a dagger was literally held at the throat of American democracy. President talking there about January 6th uh, regarding some remarks he made last week. His visit to Atlanta comes as Congress weighs the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Atlanta, longtime home of the late Congressman John Lewis, who fought for voting rights during his time in the House. The proposed legislation would supersede several states' election laws enacted after the 2020 election including Georgia's election law passed last year. President Biden and Vice President Harris rallied, or railed, I should say, against Georgia's election law signed by Governor Kemp, calling it a partisan attempt to get the election results Republicans want. The assault on our freedom to vote will be felt by every American in every community, in every political party. And if we stand idly by our entire nation, will pay the price for generations to come. Um, some of the things that he said, I know um, Joe Biden was comparing like George Washington to Jefferson Davis yeah. and Andrew Jackson and, you know, and I know Mitch McConnell, he actually took an issue to it. You know, he went on the Senate floor and start, you know, saying that Joe Biden, this is not the person that he thought that he what knew. What do you think about that? Um, I honestly think, you know, it's, I kind of was taken back when he said that, and he was like, I've known Joe Biden for years, and so the fact that I saw him talking, it was a different person. So it's like, okay, well, is Joe Biden talking diff was talking differently back then than he is now? Like, why would Mitch McConnell say that? Um, and it's safe to say that he probably was, you know, talking to him in a way that he's familiar with for him to be so surprised, like, it's, he felt like he kind of traded yeah. him. And so that's why I kind of wonder, like, okay, were you... I'm not say laying in bed with Mitch McConnell, but where you in cohesive with him before, mm -hmm. so now he feels like you kind of went against him now. At this point, it seems like he doesn't want to work with you now after that whole comment. Like he just felt so offended. So right, and I think that's probably Joe Biden's problem in the situation. Is this is that he campaigned as this guy who will work with Republicans. They all know me. They all like me. I can cut a deal. It's the guy who I am. I'm the guy that cuts deals. And for him to take such a strong tone about voting rights and compare Republicans to some of history's most famous demagogues and segregationists, it has a number of people scratching their heads saying, is that really the best tone to take with a group of people that you may need their votes from, right? If you wanna avoid the filibuster requirement, you're gonna need some Republican votes, right? You know, calling somebody, comparing them to a racist may not be the best way. You, you will harden attitudes. 
But at the same time, there were a lot of people who were like, hey, he's on the money. Because keep in mind, Biden's a politician too. He has to appeal to his groups, his constituents. Mm -hmm. Like I said before, there's a lot of interest groups, voting rights, um, congressional legislators, his supporters, his donors that want to hear him forcefully come out on this issue and they want decisive action. So in some ways, the president was just really put in an impossible position. Um, but with that said, I don't know if it got him anything, right? He threw the kitchen sink at Republicans, threw out some assertions, and what did he get for it? Um, but you know, I, uh, we'll just have to let this thing play out. Tuesday's vote is gonna be something else. Tuesday. Yeah. And, and, and I'm glad you bring that up because this is my last topic. Okay. So the, I'm glad you brought the filibuster. So what, explain this, because a lot of people don't know what filibuster mean. Yeah. And it's like now you hear so much of the filibuster and that's what's stopping us from progressing forward. So how did filibuster originate and what is a filibuster? I'll try to explain the best way I can, but you know, keep in mind, I'm just a little old county commissioner. So this, ain't, this is a little outside my wheelhouse, but it seems to me that filibuster was created to preserve the rights of the minority party in the U.S. Senate, right? To say that you know, legislation can still pass with the majority, but if you filibuster an item or a piece of legislation, that threshold needed to pass increases. And I believe the amount for a filibuster, to break a filibuster is 60 votes. Well, Washington's split right now. You have the same number of Democrats, same number of Republicans, 50-50 with Kamala Harris, you know, coming in and break that tie. Am I right about that? Is it 50 yes. or 51? It's it's, that's 50 and 50, and she's the, um, she presides over the Senate, so when, if there's a tie... It's a tie, then she steps in. She steps in. Either way, it's very narrow, divided government. So the Democrats really don't have any votes to spare, and in fact, they need to bring over some people from the other side. Mm -hmm. Now, the history of the filibuster is, you know, it's more of a house courtesy. You know, when you go and you play cards and you say house rules, and you establish the rules, that's the filibuster. It's not a law, it's not enshrined in the US Constitution anywhere, and it can change. The number required to break a filibuster has changed over the years. And there have been carve-outs for certain types of legislation when dealing with the filibuster, most recently for judicial nominations. So Republicans actually changed the rule of the filibuster. Under the Obama administration, so they can pass uh, judicial nominations to the different benches. I believe they changed the filibuster rules for Supreme Court uh, 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 nominations or confirmations. So don't quote me on that, but still what I'm getting at is this. The Democrats have taken the position, or a good bit of them have taken the position, even Joe Biden, saying voting rights is so central to our democracy. And there are Republican-led legislators and Secretary of States in this country that have viciously attacked people's right to vote. The federal government has a compelling interest, a responsibility to step in and provide guide rails, guardrails or guidance when it comes to democracy and elections in this nation. And that we need a carve out of the filibuster for voting rights and voting rights only. The dissenters of that say, and some are in the Democratic Party say, well, the Republicans could win next year at some point. And if you change the rules for us, you change the rules for them, and they can come back and do some damage. Mm -hmm. Are you sure you want to do that? Mm -hmm. And that's where we're at.
Well, we'll just wait to see what happens on Tuesday. You know, when we when they vote on that voting uh, rights legislation, and we'll see uh, what turns out. Bro, I'm, I'm going to be on the Twitter vote. feed, just <laughs> <laughs> just watching. Well, my last two things I want to talk to. We can, I promise we let go. Okay, okay. Uh, so two people uh, we know that recently passed away. Um, yeah. uh, Bob Segar from Full House. Right. The father from Full House, and also the uh, Marta CEO. Marta is our public transportation here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Parker, I think his name is. He passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, He's a good dude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's um, and it's kind of crazy as far as with the Marta CEO passing away. If you want to go into how he passed away, because I, I mean I didn't was not familiar how he passed away. Well. Um, I'm not too familiar with the details of his passing, but I do know um, he lost his life Friday night. Um, and I'll say this about Mr. Parker. Um, he was the Marta CEO. Um, I remember him from uh, uh, community meetings that we had in Gwinnett, because we know we had a referendum to expand and bring Marta's service to Gwinnett. It didn't pass. But I remember him coming to Gwinnett and actually making himself available to answer questions and talking to folks. I think this is right before he'd end up becoming CEO. But anyways, I saw that to say that, you know, Metro Atlanta, um, not just the city of Atlanta, but the Metro Atlanta region really benefited from his leadership. Mm -hmm. And his presence will be missed. And to lose a leader like that so abruptly, you know, Marta's leadership is going to have to, you know, make some decisions on next steps and um, a good guy and I want to you know uh, uh, be sure that our listeners I'm gonna ask that they make a prayer uh, keep him and his family um, in your prayers tonight because whoever comes after him it will be some big shoes to fill and you know our boy uh, Mr. Saget Bob Saget man the dad from Full House. I, I love that show. I, ain't gonna I lie. love that show. But you know what got me with him is he had a potty mouth off the show. Yes, he did. <laughs> like stand-up comedy was crazy. Yeah. I was like, wow. He was His like roast. Yes. Man, he kept, He was a real one. And yes. So, so you know, I feel his presence is going to be missed. He's like one of those guys where it's like when he passed, you're like, damn, him. Oh man. So yeah, definitely a legend, and uh, I'm definitely going to miss his comedy routines so uh again keep his family in his in your prayers as well i'll keep and keep the full house uh family in your yeah, prayers that's true too. yeah because i think they consider him as a father as well yeah as well. yeah so um the twitter reactions the interviews that come from his co um his uh former colleagues were very moving so you know when you lose a guy like that that meant so many different things to people you know it's going to have an impact okay yeah. well thank you um for coming in with us and stopping in at Point of View Uncensored. Um, again, please feel free to watch our show um, on all social media platforms. Again, I'm Dr. Renaissance. Thank you, Mr. Kirk and Target.